James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, uh, makes this marvelous statement in his New Testament letter. This is James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Friends, God is a good gift giver. He delights to give good gifts to his children. We have been exploring many of those good gifts in our current sermon series in the book of Genesis. The series is entitled, God the Creator and Redeemer. And so far we've witnessed God's glorious gift of creation in Genesis 1. Out of his good pleasure, God creates the earth, the heavens, the seas, and all that fills them. Creation is God's good gift. And then God goes on at the end of chapter 1 to create human beings in his image, male and female. He creates them. The image of God in human beings is a good gift. We reflect him. We represent him. We speak. We think. We relate. We delight. We create. We steward. It's a good gift in our lives that informs how we view and value one another. And so I spent three weeks teasing out three implications on the image of God. And as the series continued, Dylan Colley, our uh, associate pastor, preached a very helpful sermon in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, speaking of the good gifts that God gives to his people of work and worship. Work, in fact, being a means of our worship. These are good gifts that God gives. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. This morning, as we continue along in Genesis 2, we see another gloriously good gift that God gives. A good gift that God gives that reflects his good design and fulfills his good purpose. A good gift that God gives that reflects his good design and fulfills his good purpose. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 2. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Genesis 2 helpfully on page 2. So let's turn there. Genesis 2. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Uh, if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give free Bibles away. So in the lobby uh, on the bookcase closest to the restrooms, uh, you can find some black hardback Bibles. Take one if you need it. Give one to a friend if he or she needs it. Uh, Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, <clears throat> excuse me, hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The main idea of this message is that marriage is a good gift from God that reflects God's good design and fulfills God's good purpose. Marriage is a good gift from God that reflects God's good design and fulfills God's good purpose. We'll organize our time in this text by following this progression. A problem is presented, a solution is provided, and an institution is created. That's the flow, that's the outline of this passage. A problem is presented, a solution is provided, and an institution is created. That's a, an outline, a little structure for our, our time together here in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Now, as we consider Genesis 1 and 2, we've been in here the last several weeks. You may be curious why it seems that there are two different accounts of creation. So if you're reading successively Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, you might think that there are two different accounts being portrayed here in the biblical text. But instead of thinking about these as two different accounts of creation, I want to encourage you to think of them as the same account viewed from two different vantage points. The same account viewed in two different ways. Last Sunday, Dylan used a helpful illustration that of a U.S. map. Zoomed out, you can look at the entirety of the states in the U.S., much like we look at Genesis 1, zoomed out the entirety of God's work of creation. But then as you get to Genesis 2, what you do is you focus in on one of the step, one of the states. You, you zero in a little bit. Your, your camera lens zooms in. That's what we see in Genesis 2. We zoom in on a particular part of God's creation, and that is man and women. The interactions, the, the specifics. You can also think of this as a book. Genesis 1 is the prologue or, or the, the summary preface, the introductory part. And then Genesis 2 is chapter 1 in the book where we get finer detail. You get dialogue. Character development occurs. So that's, that's what we see here. Not two different accounts, the same creation, but viewed in two different ways, viewed from two different vantage points. One a prologue and then the other the detailed chapter one, the character development, the finer details. And so that's what we've embarked upon in Genesis 2, is the, the finer details. Let's follow this progression here in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. First, we see a problem is presented. We read in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, for reading in context, reading successively Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we should be stopped in our tracks right now. There's something very different is happening here in Genesis 2, a very different phrase than what we've seen. What is that difference? The Lord designates something as 
not good. That's a shock to our system if we're reading successively, we're reading in context. Because in Genesis 1, the six days of creation, over and over and over again, we see, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And at the end of the sixth day, after the male and the female were created, it was very good. And now as we continue, we see that it is not good that the man should be alone. This is shocking if we're reading in context, reading successively. What is God doing here in communicating to us as people? God is creating tension and emphasis here by breaking the pattern. In his storyline of creation, we see a disruption here of the good pattern. Something suddenly is not good that he's going to resolve, but it's a way to grab our attention and stop us to behold what he's about to do. Now, this is not a statement of God's moral deficiency or a mistake that he's made somehow. Rather, it's a statement of incompleteness that his creation must continue. He must bring completion and ultimate fulfillment to a given need that's presented right here. It's not good that the man should be alone. There's a need presented here. That he's going to fulfill. He'll complete his work of creation. So this is not a kind of a moral statement on God, like he's stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out. No, he's he's unfolding a story. He's he's creating build-up to what he's about to do. Next, God sets out to meet this need for the man. He sets out to make a helper fit for or suitable to him. A complementary partner, perfectly positioned to be his partner. Like two puzzle pieces, different, yet they come together in unity, uniquely suited for one another. As God seeks to meet this need for the man, the tension continues. The, the right fit isn't found initially, is it? Verse 19 and 20, now out of the ground that the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What is going on here? You asking that question as you're reading the, the text? I mean, at first glance, it seems that God is stumbling and bumbling in the dark, just throwing paint on the wall. What's going to stick? What's going to look good? Is that what's going on here? Does God know what he's doing in seeking to provide this need in the man's life? Friends, God knows exactly what he's doing. No deed of God is purposeless. He is intentional. He has a purpose for what he's doing here. Two points of purpose in parading animals before him. One, God is developing Adam's leadership. God is developing Adam's leadership. He's cultivating Adam's role as an image bearer, as his representative, as his vice regent in the garden, put there to rule, to 
bear part of God's image, and that is to exercise authority in naming animals. When you name something, what does that indicate about you? You have authority, stewardship over that which you name. He is cultivating, developing Adam's leadership. Adam has to step into this role, use that delegated authority, and name the animals, the birds of the air, the land creatures as they come. God knows these are not suitable fits, but God is developing Adam in his character as an image bearer. Secondly, God is also creating a sense of longing that will soon be fulfilled. Like a good story, there's rising action before the climax. He's creating tension and a need for, for resolution. As each successive animal and bird is paraded before Adam and deemed unsuitable as a helper, the reader's sense of longing builds. When will it be met? When will it be met? And the tension is finally relieved. The longing is finally met when at last God creates Eve. This is an unfolding narrative, a beautiful strategic narrative that is building, rising in action that will climax when Eve is presented before Adam. And the lack of the fittingness now only serves to emphasize the perfect fit later. It's akin, not a perfect analogy, but if you've ever looked for a job or, or, or you, you, you went on college visits, each visit was actually helpful to you as you reached your final one when said, this is the one. You realize what didn't work, what wasn't a fit, and then when you finally did find a fit, it all made sense. This is what I was wanting. So there's, there's a buildup. There's a longing that's created, and you appreciate what you have once you do have it, having gone through the process. That's what's going on here. The Lord is building, rising action that will be resolved in the climax when Eve finally comes. After a host of land animals, air animals, birds come by, his need for a helper still remains unmet. So first, a problem is presented. Second, a solution is provided. We read in verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. This is a God-induced sleep. We see this in Genesis 15 when God puts Abraham to sleep. We see it elsewhere with David and Saul's interaction, he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Saul. David could have taken his life, but he doesn't in grace and mercy. This is a God-induced, a deep, deep sleep. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now notice very carefully the man's response. How is this marked off as different in the text? What do you notice? The man's response is in a stanza, which indicates the man's response is poetic. He speaks a word of poetry. He's so excited. This man is so excited that he breaks out into poetry. What he sees is good, and he delights in it. He says in verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
at last. Do you see the buildup that had happened? Not the right one, not the right run, the parade of animals and birds, not the right one. Finally, at last, the tension's relieved. There it is. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, comes from me, complementary to me, uniquely suited for me. Matthew Henry, the 17th and 18th century preacher and author, writes this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. Adam lost a rib, but in lieu thereof, he had a helpmeet for him, which abundantly made up for his loss. Beautiful description of the tenderness and the fittingness of this new relationship. Now let's go back to this notion of a helper fit for him. This is uncomfortable for some. What does the Bible mean that God creates a helper for Adam. Sometimes we falsely think a helper is equated with a half of a person. No. You do a word study on this noun, ezer, helper, oftentimes is used of God. It's a word of strength, of supreme value, not a doormat. A helper is not a doormat. A helper is someone supremely valuable that offers strength to someone in need. That's what the woman does. Supremely valuable. Offering strength and support to the man. The man and the woman are not identical. They are complementary. Like two different pieces of the puzzle. Coming together. Being complementary means that the man and woman, husband and wife, have different roles. Equal dignity before the eyes of God but different roles. And we live in a culture that conflates roles and dignity. If I can't have the same role, I don't have the same dignity. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. God creates complementary relationships, roles, equal in value, equal in dignity before the Lord Almighty, but different in how they function and come together. What is one of those differences that we see in the text? One is authority. One is authority. The man gives this beautiful creature, this uniquely suitable partner, a name. Eve doesn't name herself. The man entrusted with the authority delegated from God gives his wife a name. This is not a demeaning reality. This is a headship reality and a good and right authority given from God to exercise here and give a name to his wife in great delight. Whoa, man. Wow. He gives her, you didn't catch that, did you? <laughs> in delight, he gives her a name using his right authority. He's exercising a headship role that Paul unpacks further in a related passage in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, through 33. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. 
And wives are to submit, to yield to your husband as to the Lord. We know that God is a God of order and structure. That's what we see here in Genesis 2. That's what we see in Ephesians 5. Order and structure here in the marriage relationship. If we just zoom out a little bit, we see the order and structure in Genesis chapter 1. The seven days of creation are highly ordered. God, he creates habitats and then he creates inhabitants to come and occupy the habitats. Highly structured, highly ordered. He's a God of order. Churches have governing structure with pastors, elders, deacons, members. It's right and good structure for the healthy functioning of the body. And likewise in families, there's a healthy authority structure between husbands and wives and parents and children. God is good in giving order and structure to entities that he creates, the church, marriage, and the home. It actually demonstrates his love and goodness towards us because we as fallen human beings need structure to avoid complete disarray. And I know I'm anticipating what's happening next week in Genesis chapter 3, but God creates structure, order, as to glorify himself and to temper some of the results of our sin to tamp down some of the results of our sin. His design is a gift to his creation. It helps promote health and viability in life, in the church, in marriage. And by God's ordering, the husband is in a position of leadership, not domineering, not lording it over his wife, but leadership, rightly used authority, taking initiative, not being passive and watching her get taken advantage of, which is exactly what Adam will do next week. Stay tuned for that. Take initiative. Be a protector, a provider. It's a position of leadership that needs to be carried out prayerfully, lovingly, humbly, and with complete reliance on Jesus. Wives have a role too, to yield to that leadership, not to belittle that leadership, not to kick against the goads and reject that leadership, but to receive that leadership as a good gift. It's a voluntary yielding, motivated by love and trust. Wives, Ephesians 5, 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, by definition, you must be submitted to the Lord. And when you submit to the Lord, are you dominated, domineered, trampled down? No, 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 no. Submit to the Lord, wives, as you do. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The, the comparison there is beautiful because as we submit to the Lord, we find life and health and viability. It's a good thing to come under the authority of the Lord. And likewise, God's design here for a wife to yield to her husband prayerfully, lovingly, it's a good thing. It's for the health of the marriage. Submission does not mean inferiority. It's not a statement about importance or value or worth. It's functional obedience out of love so the marriage can function properly as God designed it. This is tender area in our lives, I know, because sin has distorted this. If you're a husband, your temptations will be to abuse your authority or to step back from your authority. To abuse your authority and to be harsh to your wife, 
or to not use your authority at all and be passive and let her bear the brunt of all the responsibility. Fight that, brothers. Fight that by the grace of God. Wives, you'll be tempted at times to not receive that authority as a gift, to be critical, demeaning, to just reject it altogether. I'm going to encourage you, receive that authority as a gift. Your husband will make mistakes. Pray for him. Encourage him. There are different roles here. We see a difference in authority right from the get-go in Genesis 2, as Adam names his wife. I'm no ballroom dancer, but I know enough to know that there are good dancers out there. And when you see a couple dancing, man and woman dancing together, it's smooth, it's not clunky, it's rhythmic, it's beautiful to watch. You're not entirely sure who's leading, who's following. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful picture of rhythm and movement. Claire Smith in her book, God's Good Design, writes, in God's good design, the relationship between husband and wife is neither a march nor a race, but a dance where the man leads and the woman follows, and yet they move as one in perfect harmony. What a beautiful picture. Not dragging someone along, not digging your heels in and not going. Beautiful. A man leads, a woman follows, and yet they move as one in perfect harmony. That's God's intent. That's God's design. In Genesis 2, 18 through 25, we've seen a problem is presented, a solution is provided. Thirdly and finally, an institution is created. Let's look together at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And friends, thus the institution of marriage was created. This is a script from the very first wedding ceremony ever. We have it in our Bibles. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I'd like to draw out several observations about God's good design for the marriage relationship based on this passage. Number one, it is a relationship of priority. It is a relationship of priority. A man shall leave his father and mother. This is not abandonment. However, it is loyalty shift. So in that ancient Near Eastern culture, you would not forsake and move away from your family miles and miles. You, you likely tended the same farmland and you would inherit the farmland from your father. You would likely move out of the house, but stay close by so you could farm the land, but you had an allegiance shift. Your spouse was now the primary human loyalty. Yes, you're called to honor your father and, father and mother. Ten Commandments, yes, but there's an allegiance shift. Now your spouse is your primary human loyalty. That's what this leaving of father and mother means. There's an allegiance shift. So it's a relationship of priority. A husband and wife are each other's primary human loyalty in this life even beyond kids. You will love your children best, parents, when you love your spouse first. They need to see their proper place. You will love your children best when you love your spouse first. It's a relationship of monogamy. 
Second observation, a relationship of monogamy. God created only one Eve for Adam, not several Eves. One spouse committed for a lifetime until death do you part. It's a relationship of monogamy. It's a relationship of permanence so long as you both shall live. The man shall hold fast to his wife or cleave in some translations. It's the superglue word of the scripture, superglue word of the Bible, intended to be inseparable. Picture two pieces of construction paper. I use this every single wedding I do. Two pieces of construction paper slathered with superglue. You hold them together and hold them fast. Wait 10 minutes and then try to pull them apart. What happens when you try to pull those pieces apart? You tear them both up. And so it is in the marriage relationship. This intended to be inseparable relationship is pulled apart. There's wreckage in the wake of every divorce. It's intended to be inseparable till death do you part. That's God's design. Hold fast the super glue word of the Bible. Another observation. It's a relationship of heterosexuality. And I understand I'm on dicey grounds here culturally. This is a relationship of heterosexuality. God created Eve to come together and be united to Adam. One flesh. And it's a sexual union based on differentiation of parts physically to come together as one flesh, two puzzle pieces coming together. It requires differentiation to come together in that one flesh relationship. It's God's good design. Homosexuality is contrary to God's good design. I say this with the utmost love in my heart. Homosexuality is contrary to God's good design. It is a sin in the eyes of God, and the Bible's very clear about that. I want to review a little bit of what we discussed a couple weeks ago when I spoke on gender and gender dysphoria, because there's a parallel here. There's a difference between the results of sin generally and the results of sin personally. There's a difference between the results of sin generally and the results of sin personally. So for example, there are people in this life who have a particular temptation, a particular predisposition to alcoholism. There are people in this life who have a particular temptation, a particular predisposition to gender dysphoria. There are people in this life who have a particular temptation, predisposition to same-sex attraction. That's a general result of the fall, the, the brokenness that we see in Genesis 3 cascading to every generation since. The general impact of sin. All three of these areas of sin, struggle, alcoholism, gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, are the result of the fall. They wouldn't be in our lives had Adam and Eve not disobeyed in Genesis 3. But beware of moving from the general to the specific and claiming that an individual's predisposition or susceptibility to alcoholism, gender dysphoria, or same-sex attraction is a result of their own personal sin choice. 
Pastor Vaughn Roberts shares his own experience as a man who battles feelings of same-sex attraction. Spells out this point. Vaughn Roberts writes, we didn't simply choose to be attracted to the same sex. Causation is much more complex than that. And so we shouldn't feel guilty or ashamed about the temptation. The same is true for us all in a fallen world. We may not be responsible for the particular struggles and temptations that we have, but we are, of course, responsible for how we respond to them. Don't miss that. We're not responsible for the general effects of the fall, how we're tempted and predisposed to certain behaviors, but we most certainly are responsible for how we respond to them. The feeling of wanting a drink for an alcoholic is not a sin, it's a temptation. Taking the first drink is the sin. The feeling of being at peace with your own biological gender, not being at peace, having dysphoria, that is not a sin, it's a temptation. However, making the full transition to a different gender is a rebellion against the way God created. That's, that's the sin. The feeling of being attracted to a person of your same sex is not a sin, it's a temptation. Engaging in same-sex relations, that's the sin. We need to be careful about how the, the results of, the sin, of sin generally and then personal culpability in sin. We may not be responsible for the particular struggles and temptations we have, but we are certainly responsible for how we respond to them. Another observation. The marriage relationship is a relationship of sexual purity. Sexual fidelity. The gift of sex is given to be enjoyed, celebrated, within and only within the protected confines of marriage. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, it's displeasing to God, it's contrary to God's design. God gives this gloriously good gift to be received in the protected confines of marriage. You see, the protection around an entity indicates its value. I love art history. We've had a chance one time to go to, to Paris and go to the Louvre. I could spend days there. My wife goes crazy because I look at every little, little caption and I read the details and I go on to the next one and read the details. She's like, Dane, come on, let's go. Laura, this is interesting to me. It's amazing when you go to the Louvre. You can go up to all these paintings, these masterful works and get real close to them. But there's one you can't get close to. And you know what it is. It's the Mona Lisa. And I, the Mona Lisa is like tiny. It's like this. And it's in this particular place that you've got to stand in line like for an hour and there's security guards up there. Why the high security? Why the heightened protection? Because of the value of the painting. And so it is with sex. Why the high security? Why the heightened protection? Because of the value of the gift. It's to be celebrated and enjoyed only in the context of the marriage relationship because only then is it rightly protected. But what we've done in our culture is take the gift of sex, like taking the Mona Lisa out of the protected confines onto the corner of Beach Street and Trapello for every passerby to touch and to rip and to smudge. That's not how it's supposed to be. The value of a gift, the value of an entity 
is seen and how it's protected. That's what it is with sex. It's in the protected confines of the covenant of marriage. Finally, the marriage relationship is a relationship of vulnerability. A relationship of vulnerability. Notice verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Yes, this is corrupted by the fall, isn't it? Terribly corrupted. We'll see it. Suddenly they are ashamed, putting fig leaves on top of them. Yet in the institution of marriage, there is still a designed vulnerability where you bear your soul, your body, before your spouse, not expecting judgment, but expecting reception. I'm 42 years old, and, you know, I used to think I was invincible, right? As an athlete, and, you know, used to work out, and, and suddenly, like, my hair's falling out. I have a little, you know, tube around the waist. It's like, I don't care because my wife loves me. There's a vulnerability there. And she, she, she appreciates me. It's, 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 a, it's a beautiful picture of the vulnerability that we're, we're, we're going to get old and gray together. But it doesn't matter because I'm received by my wife as a gift. So though it's tainted by the fall, there's still a right vulnerability in the marriage relationship to be enjoyed. It's God's good design. Marriage is a good gift from God that reflects God's good design and fulfills God's good purpose. Well, what is that purpose? What is this purpose? Hardwired into the marriage relationship is the proclamation of the gospel. Hardwired into Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, is a proclamation of the gospel. Paul says it in Ephesians 5, He says, this mystery of marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God designed marriage to point to another relationship. As glorious and beautiful as an earthly love relationship, love story is, listen, every marriage was designed to point to a greater love story. And that is the love story of God pursuing a rebellious people for himself, laying down his life in the person of his son, so that we can be forgiven of all our sin and brought back into right relationship with him. Every marriage is intended to point to that greater love story. So that when a husband lays down his life for his wife, sacrificially, sacrificially loves her, we're giving a picture of Jesus' love for his church. And when a wife lovingly yields to her husband's authority, it's a picture of the church's interaction with Jesus. Marriage is designed to tell a greater love story. That's the purpose of marriage. Paul says, this mystery of marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, like a giant marquee sign. This is about the gospel. This is about God's love for his people. So marriage is, in fact, related, relevant for all of us, regardless of your marital status. Whether you're single, widowed, married, or divorced, if you are a Christian, then you're a member of Christ's church, and this passage has something to say for you. It's a picture of God's love for you, sacrificial love for you. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, this passage, this truth of marriage is for you. It's intended to proclaim the very gospel 
to you, that you would know of God's heart for you as he sent Jesus to die for you. Sacrificial love, yielding to him, surrendering to him, inviting you to trust him as part of the church. It's relevant for everybody, regardless of your marital status. Now, how do we think of this as singles? This is a hard, it's a hard passage. It's not good for a man to be alone. But my goodness, some of us are alone in this room, aren't we? God is pointing to our need for companionship, fellowship, and community. And friends, I want to encourage you, whether you're married or not, he has a gracious gift of family for you in the local church. Let me read a passage for you. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has come and followed me. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Wow. This is the cost of following Jesus. The disciples are like, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, yes. And you will receive family. You will receive what you've lost through the body of Christ here in this life, through the local church, brother, sister, mother, father. Relationships are one of the great gifts that God gives us here in this life through the local church. So yes, some of us are single and we have the gift of singleness as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. We're content in our singleness. Some of us are single and we don't have the gift of singleness. And in those cases, singleness is not a gift for you. It's a trial for you to continue to follow Christ through. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. Look to him. Trust in him. Walk in purity and holiness with him. John Piper has written a very helpful book called This Momentary Marriage. I recommend it to all of you, regardless if you're married or not. The truth is, earthly marriage is a shadow that gives way to the substance of a greater marriage that we will all have if we're believers in Jesus Christ. We will be called to the marriage supper of the land if we're believers and we will be united to the one we've been longing for, created for, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian men and women will not be married to one another in the new creation. The Bible's clear about that. Christian men and women will forever be united to their Lord Jesus in the new creation. What a wonderful gift. And our witness, our lives, whether we're married or single in this life, help us prepare for that day. How? Christians who are married in this life and Christians who are single in this life need each other as we prepare for that great day to come. Christian married couples, you're called to reflect the sacrificial love of Jesus and the church is yielding to the authority of Jesus. You, you're called to reflect that in your marriage, to help your single friends see one day what it would look like, albeit imperfectly, but one day what it's gonna look like to be united to the Lord. Christian singles, you play a pivotal role that married couples need to see you 
waiting in patience and in purity for your Lord through difficulty in this life. Singles have so much to offer pursuing Christ, fixing their eyes, being patient and pure, not taking matters into their own hands, trying to meet a need in their own strength. No, walk in purity, walk in patience, wait upon the Lord, for that's what we're all called to do before the Lord's return. Walk in purity and patience and wait on the Lord. Marrieds need singles. Singles need marrieds. Marrieds need singles. Singles need marrieds. There's sometimes fractures that can happen in the life of the church based on life stage. Oh, don't let it be. Don't let it be. We need each other. And on that glorious day, we'll sing these wonderful words in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For the Lord, the God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Oh, may we be ready when that day comes. And may we realize that our interactions, our witness toward one another, every day is helping us get ready for that ultimate marriage. How you interact with each other is of the utmost importance, whether you're married or single. Let's do it well and help each other get ready for that great and ultimate wedding day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word, for your truth. What a privilege it is to read it, to receive it, to seek to understand it. Lord, continue to empower us, Lord, to be not just hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. Lord, we love you. We need your grace daily. In Jesus' name. Amen.